Hi, I'm Karina. I'm the founder and executive director for Mind Oasis. And this is a special edition of Meditation Happy Hour. You'll notice I don't have a guest today. I thought it might be fun to share the story of Mind Oasis with you. It touches a little bit on my personal life and also uh, how meditation and resiliency come together, uh, especially during times like this where, yes, life is always uncertain and there's a lot of change. Um, it doesn't take a lot of uh, exploration in your own personal life to see that that's true. However, it does feel like in the time of Corona that things are a little bit more, shall we say, intense and perhaps a bit more in our face, i.e., um, we're being asked to examine our lives in a profound way, really. Whether you're in a acceptance phase or a grieving phase or an anger phase or a disbelief phase or some sort of schizophrenic combination of all of those throughout the day, which is me, um, the truth is, is that that's sort of life in general. It just is amplified. I like to think of it like the pressure of the coal that creates the diamonds, right? So Mind Oasis, the story of Mind Oasis, I think is interesting. And I also think it's really appropriate for what we're facing. And when I thought about doing this meditation happy hour, Tea Talk and Truth with Karuna, though I have to admit, today it is coffee. Um, I decided I wasn't going to hurry. So a lot of times in videos, we hurry through to get to the point people don't have time. So I'm just going to invite you to grab a cup of tea or coffee and settle in. Um, it probably won't be more than 20 minutes, but I'd like you to really understand both the story of Mind Oasis, a little bit about my personal story, and then about how the two are an example of resiliency in action and how our meditation practice can help us strengthen the muscle of resiliency, okay? In at Mind Oasis, I think one of the things I'm very proud of is that we don't sit and talk in theory a lot. So we don't say, well, if you sit for five hours a day in a cave for a year, you'll probably reach enlightenment. Whether or not that's true, I think the philosophy, the founding philosophy of Mind Oasis is that when you sit as householders, which you and I are, we're not monks, though I suppose you could be, but most of us are not monks. Most of us have family obligations, work obligations, and we're not hanging out in a cave. For householders, I think the, the hope, the desire, the invitation is for our meditation practice to wake us up to the present moment and to be with exactly life as it is. I say that sometimes and then I think to myself, well, well, what does that really look like? I joke around a lot about being a better meditation teacher than meditator. And I think that's true. So I'm going to get there in the third part of what I want to talk about today, about how to actually viscerally use your practice to build your resiliency and to become more awake in each moment of your life. And then I'll talk about why 
that's helpful. Okay. But first a little bit about Mind Oasis. So in 2017, I married my husband, Joseph. Many of you know, he teaches sometimes on Mind Oasis and that would have been in January of 2017. And I looked him in the eyes about two weeks later and I said, Hey, I think I'd like to go on a month long silent meditation retreat. And he was kind of like, okay, because he's a very supportive husband, but we had just gotten married and it's maybe a little bit against the grain to just leave. But I had had this desire to amplify my retreat practice. I had been on weekend retreats on my own. I'd been on one week, two week meditation retreats. And I was in the middle of the intensive that I did with Kelly Lindsay at Dakini Meditative that taught me how to be a meditation teacher. So I was in the middle of that and I was really feeling called to take the show on the road and to sit with myself and see what arose. So in April of 2017, I drove out to the desert to Dharma Treasure and um, engaged in a month-long meditation retreat. And so I found myself in, in an old Airstream trailer when you walked in, there was like a platform and then it was in the middle of the desert and there was a platform that you would walk up. And on the right hand side, I created probably about a four foot by four foot space where I meditated. And then off to the left was the little kitchen, which had its own propane stove, um, a sink that was good enough that I could like put a, a bucket underneath and have it drain into that and like brush my teeth and then a refrigerator and a place to store my food up above so the mice couldn't get it. And then you would walk through there and the next room was my bedroom, which was like a single bed and enough storage to, to put my things. And then the back room, which was tiny, was sort of just an extra, if you, it was kind of cruddy, like you could probably put your muddy shoes back there or something. I didn't really use that. So I really lived in three spaces over a month that probably were about 14 feet by four feet across, maybe four and a half feet across. And when, and I was engaged in a specific practice, a, a Tibetan Buddhist practice. And when one creates or goes into retreat, um, oftentimes we create a boundary, whether it's a Tibetan Buddhist um, retreat or not. When you go into retreat, it feels really good to add an extra layer of energetic safety around you. And so my retreat space then where I could walk around and be with nature uh, consisted of probably about three acres. So the space I was in was what, 12 feet, 14 feet by about four and a half feet. And then the, the area in which I sequestered myself was about three acres. And I went in um, feeling well-prepared, maybe a little nervous because I didn't know what would happen. I'm an only child, so I'm used to being by myself. I'm also fiercely independent. So I wasn't concerned about being lonely, which by the way, should have been the first sign. I wasn't concerned about being lonely. I think my only concern was kind of stepping into the unknown. All along the story, I'm hopeful that you're going to just 
think about how this could relate to what we're facing with coronavirus, stepping into the unknown, right? Thinking about what loneliness means. So I arrived bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I drove my car so that I could have all of the um, foodstuffs and, and uh, comfort things that I could possibly imagine and more. Um, I felt like that was important. I kissed my husband and my dog goodbye, both very important beings in my life. And I drove out on my own and I arrived and I was very excited. And I took a couple of days to get to know the land and to get to know the area. And I actually um, went to Tucson first just to sort of get a feel for the area and pick up any last minute things that I might want or need. I got my boundary all set up. I got the retreat area, my Airstream all set up and went into retreat turned off my notifications on my phone and started to engage in these practices. And each day would look something like this. I would wake up at about 6 a.m. And um, my first meditation would be from bed. So I would wake up and um, just go to the bathroom and make up uh, coffee because I'm a coffee drinker and would um, crawl back into bed and just have a half hour practice of really gentle meditation, gentle relaxation. And then I would walk out, this property had a hot tub on it, which was really great for me because though I was in the desert, I really need water as well. And so every morning my ritual was that I would meditate and then I would walk out, hop into the hot tub before anyone else was around. There were other meditators on site. And each morning I would observe how the sun was coming up a couple minutes earlier each day. It was spring, right? So the days were getting longer. And by two minutes each day, it would change. It was very interesting to watch the sun come up over the ridge that I could see where there were cliffs and whatnot. So I'd engage that practice and then I would head back to my Airstream and make breakfast excuse me, I'm sorry. First, I would do my meditation or my yoga practice. So I would engage, I decided to engage a sun salutation practice where the, you know, the first day I think I did like six or eight maybe, and then I would add two each day. So by the end of my time there, I was doing 108 sun salutations. So I would do that and then I would make breakfast and then I'd have just a little bit of personal time sort of if I needed to do laundry or if there was something I needed to attend to, there's still, even in retreat, there's life to attend to. So again, if you just start to think through this with the pandemic, right, you might be stuck at home and yet there is life to attend to. You still actually do need to go to the grocery store, at least to get Instacart or whatever you've got going on. I live in the mountains, so we actually have to go to the grocery store, right? We still have to pay our bills. I've forgotten a couple of times. I don't know about you, but it's like things have gotten weird. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Like I still have to participate in life, right? So it's like that in retreat. You still have to participate in life in a way. You're just sequestered away. And then I would begin my practices and they were maybe like three hours in the morning. Then I would have a nice lunch break. Um, Typically, I aspired to read some sort of Dharma book and instead took a nap. And then I would wake up 
I'd go for a nice long walk around those three acres, engage in meditation practices again, make dinner, wash dishes, and engage in my final meditation practices for the evening. So this went on for, let's say, the first week. And then something started to unravel. Every time I sat down in a meditation practice, I would remember every terrible thing that had ever happened to me or I had done to someone else. And it was almost like reliving them. So it was me in an Airstream by myself in the desert, reliving approximately 40 years of trauma, day in and day out. And so that next week, I remember feeling tortured. So as you're thinking about your time during this pandemic, whether you're going to work and you're feeling anxiety about the people that you're going to see along the way, meet along the way that may or may not be in masks, I don't want to get political, but you know, you're exposed going out even just to go for a walk, you might be feeling exposed, right? I spent that next week experiencing anxiety about something that was reliving itself in my mind, but felt extremely real. Like it, it really felt like I was reliving every difficulty of my life. So after about a week of that, you can imagine that my mental state of mind was starting to go a wee bit downhill. So when I would wake up in the morning, instead of looking forward to my coffee and my first meditation, I would have to force myself a bit to get up and do it. And then I would go to the hot tub, which was one of my only places of refuge where I felt good. Water, sun, hope, the days are getting longer, right? So wherever you're finding refuge these days, and it might be in food and it might be in drink or it might be in the soil or it might be in your run. It doesn't really matter if it's something you want to label good or bad. It is what it is. It's where you're finding refuge. Those of us who are Buddhists, we tend to place refuge in our practices and in our teachers. And yet we're human. And so we place refuge in other places as well, if we're honest. So then I would come and do my sun salutations and I found myself hurrying through them. Well, where the hell was I going? But I was hurrying through them because I just, I think, wanted the damn day to end. And I couldn't find joy even in that. And then I'd make breakfast <clears throat> and I'd begin my practices and the dread would just start to come up. And I do my practices. I always did my practices. I always kept my schedule. But the dread throughout the day just would increase and increase and increase. And then it would be lunchtime. So I'd make lunch and I'd take a little refuge in, in making something that made me feel a little bit of joy, something I really liked, like putting a curry in or something like that, right? And then I would go out and do work. So part of my retreat was to do seva and service and luckily i had been given the task of clearing a fire perimeter around the airstream so i used a hoe and a shovel to create 
I think it ended up being a 50 foot circumference around the Airstream when I was done because I physically had to move that energy of dread from that morning. And I'd be out there in a bikini. I did not give a rat's ass. <laughs> I really didn't. And I would just soak in the sun and beat the hell out of the earth. And then I'd take a little rinse off shower because it was 100 degrees. And I'd walk back into my space and I'd aspire to read a little Dharma and I'd go to sleep because my poor brain just needed sleep. All right. So what are we doing during these times of the pandemic where we just have to beat the hell out of the earth with a hoe and a shovel? Whatever it is for you. It might be falling on the ground and crying. It might be running and running hard. And if you're like, I'm not doing that, there's a place right there for you to examine. We have to move energy as humans or that shit gets trapped in our bodies. Right? And then when we're forced into retreat, which in a sense we are, maybe it's loosening up. Maybe it'll go back to being more difficult. Who knows? We don't know. We can't predict the future. We can only live in the present. But the idea is that if you're feeling it really hardcore, where can you move some energy? And it might be beating the shit out of a pillow. I would strongly recommend not taking it out on other people. So if you're also feeling that sensation, this is a good place. This is a really good access point for you to go and get it out physically. Okay. All right. So. I take my nap, I wake up, and I would wake up with the exact same level of dread. So now it's about four o'clock and I'm supposed to be sitting in practice, but I can't because if I sit down and practice, I am convinced I'm going to lose my mind, which wouldn't have been bad. And I did eventually, but we'll get there. So I would walk the perimeter of this three acres feeling a little guilty because it felt like it wasn't why I was there, which is bullshit by the way, but it's how I felt. I was feeling guilty about it. I was feeling guilty that I wasn't having the time of my life in retreat. You know, your mind plays a trip and then it's going to place layer upon layer of story on it. So <clears throat> I would walk and then I would come in and have a practice. I would make myself have a practice, a short practice, and then I would make dinner. And then I would go and X out the day before the day had ended because it just felt good to tick off the day. And then I would recount how many days I had left in this retreat. And then I would do my evening practice, which was always kind of sweet because I knew that the day was almost done and that I could go to sleep and that I would be closer to the end. And I would fall right asleep. I slept like the dead. And then I would wake up and it was like rinse and repeat. And I'd cry and break down. I'd get back up. I'd do the little things that made me feel better. I'd cry, I'd break down over and over again until about the end of the third week. And at the end of the third week, I was sitting in that little four by four foot space doing my practices. And this voice whispered in my ear, 
what if you created something around meditation that connected people? So you have to remember, I'm sitting there feeling completely disconnected. And the only connection I have at that point is to my practice and to the traumas. And this voice said, what if you could connect people through meditation all over the world? So people could be with their teachers, be with their friends, be with the teachings, be with meditation, be with all the healing selves in the world. And no one would ever have to really be lonely ever again. I dream big. And I really did something naughty. Like in retreat, typically you don't create business plans, right? You're there for a different reason. But I started to allow myself one hour a day to dream and to start to write down the beginnings of Mind Oasis. And it came through me. And I think that any artist who's written a magnificent song or painted a magnificent painting will tell you that it's almost like you're a conduit between something and something between the product or the outcome or the piece and this inspiration. I think that's what people would call it. It's an inspiration. And I had an inspiration to connect people virtually in 2017. And it did not come from Karuna. But I had to be Karuna had to be in that trailer experiencing retreat and isolation and experiencing what it feels like to be forced to be alone. And if that ain't what the pandemic has demonstrated to us, I'm not sure what is. Because even if you're not alone, you might be in a house with four kids. But you might be going, I want to be alone. I also know a lot of people who are alone and they are experiencing a lot of sadness, missing physical connection. Right? I see my son, I hug him. But it isn't like normal. It isn't normal. He's 24. It isn't normal. He lives on his own. So, you know, it feels like he's out on his thing and we're on our thing. And should we really be hugging? And I'm not giving that up. So I left that retreat with a preliminary business plan in my hand. The last week was okay. It was still really hard but I knew I was coming out. I called my husband and discovered that my dog was indeed still alive and well, which was something that plagued me the entire time. So I worried about something irrational, which I'm sure you can relate to in this time. I think we're all worried about rational and irrational things all at once. It's a popcorn plethora. My husband was alive. I knew he was fine because, um, someone would have called me and gotten me out of retreat. And I knew that my son was fine. Those were the two people that had something happened I had asked to, to be alerted to. 
<clears throat> so I got out of retreat and I went home to then Austin, Texas and went to my teachers, Kelly Lindsay, Michael Hewitt and Denise Deniger and, and said to them, I'm thinking about doing this thing around meditation. And I have had decided that if they thought it was a bad idea, I wasn't going to do it. And instead they leapt at it and thought it was a great idea and all came onto the board of directors. And really in a way, the rest is history. We've been refining and, and we uh, established a nonprofit in 2017. Um, our mission is the same as what we envisioned in 2017. Um, and here we are many moons later. And I, I guess the interesting part to me is that really MindOasis was made for this pandemic. We were already operating online. We've used Zoom as our partner platform since day one. We have been offering connection and community since day one. And for a long time, I think that people didn't understand what we did because they were used to going into their meditation centers or they were used to going into their yoga studios. And what we always wanted to do was to make meditation accessible to anyone. Maybe you live in the, a rural area where there, those things don't exist. Or maybe you don't feel comfortable walking into a yoga studio where people are hanging out with malas and there's a big Buddha on the wall. You don't have to. You can hang out in your own room with whatever you have hanging on your wall, right? So that's kind of the whole point of Mind Oasis was to level the playing field. And I think the playing field has been leveled for everyone. We're all sort of in this together, perhaps in different ways, but in potent ways. And so Mind Oasis to me, that whisper, that inspiration in my ear in week three was for today, was for us to be a resource for you. You do not have to be alone. And community meditation is absolutely there for you, free through June. And if you need it free beyond that, no problem. We offer scholarships. So I just wanna to touch on resiliency. Obviously there was a lot of resiliency I had to tap into during my retreat. And one might say, well, what the hell? Are you good at being resilient? And the answer is yes. And so then it's like, well, are you naturally resilient? No. But when I was about eight years old, my parents started the process of getting a divorce. And by the time I was 10, they were divorced. This would have been in 1983 or so. And so in our small town, that was unusual. I went from being a popular kiddo to being weird and not popular. And so it was my first taste of losing something um, that I loved. One, living on a farm with my mom and my dad together. And two, um, being a popular kid. And both were extremely difficult and I handled them poorly because I was a confused 10 year old girl. And then when I was 20, I was uh, studying out here in Colorado at the University of Colorado Boulder and I found myself pregnant and I decided to keep my baby and I married my baby's daddy. And about three years later, he left me for my only friend I had in the town that I had moved to. And so I found myself at the age of 23, divorced with a two-year-old 
living back with my mom that I hadn't lived with since I was 17. And it's interesting during this time of coronavirus how much that experience is coming up for me. It's the trauma that I think I probably haven't processed. And um, it feels very real and raw right now for me, that loss at a young age. And so I guess my invitation to you is if you're feeling, some people have been calling it fragile. Um, for me, I call it tender, um, very tender, very, very tender. That's just okay. It's okay to feel tender and to just let yourself really feel. And there's really nothing to do other than that. Um, I will remember to tell you about one practice that I think is helpful. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, two years later, my mom died in a motorcycle accident when I was 25 and she was 46, healthy runner, toot tooted her bicycle horn and was off. And 30 minutes later, I got the phone call that she had died in a motorcycle accident. So by the time I was 25, I had experienced these three massive traumas in my life. And um, I spent about a decade, so until the time I was about 35, really not handling any of that well. On the outside, I was, um, I finished school, I owned a couple of businesses, I lost a couple of businesses, I had plenty of partners, I raised a successful kiddo, thank God. Um, but inside, I was miserable and confused, to say the least. I think it's for a different day how exactly I moved on to the next phase of my life, which is where we find ourselves today, happy, resilient, joyful, still raw, real, tender, sometimes bitchy, sometimes joyful, sometimes angry, all the things. Um, but what I did develop through all of that was resiliency. And sometimes the resiliency was sideways, like that bootstrap bullshit that we tell ourselves and then we pretend everything's okay. So sometimes my resiliency was sideways and sometimes my resiliency came out in sports and athletics, like running long distance. Um, and sometimes it came out in helpful ways, such as being able to hang tight in that time of difficulty in the airstream. My whole life had prepped me for that time in the airstream the resiliency needed to wake up each day, despite the fact that I was full on miserable, probably depressed. And what came out of that is Mind Oasis. And what's come out of Mind Oasis is people that I meet each and every day who say how the meditation practices they've learned on Mind Oasis and the community has dramatically changed their lives for the better. And none of that could have happened without the traumas in my personal life because that resiliency was needed in the trailer. And that's what brings us here today. So not everyone has had the pleasure of that many traumas in such a short period of time. And you might be feeling really impacted emotionally, physically, psychologically by this pandemic 
And if you're feeling a bit like, I actually don't know what to do. I want to offer you a couple of thoughts. I think meditation practices are complete bullshit if you can't apply them to your life. What's the point? You're navel gazing. Meditation is here to wake you up. It's actually to make life richer, fuller, brighter. So if your meditation practice feels boring, consistently, these things always happen. I get bored on my cushion too. But if it's always boring and dull and you feel like you're navel gazing, um, I'm going to invite you for one to come to my Saturday morning. I'm doing a four-week series called uh, Meditation as Medicine. And it starts this Saturday, May 9th. Um, I'll put a link so that you understand how to register. Over four weeks, I will teach you how to amplify your meditation practice. Again, I'm a better meditation teacher than I am a meditator. And a lot of people have gone through meditation instruction with me, and they, are, they have a solid meditation practice. So that's one thing. Two, when we come back to our breath again and again, whether we're feeling bored, elated, nothing, lots of things, the monkey mind is chattering, whatever is going on, as we begin to come back to our breath again and again, which is the basic instruction of shamatha meditation, which is what we use on Mind Oasis, you are strengthening your resiliency to come back to the breath no matter what is going on. That is resiliency. And so then when you're out and about in the world and someone cuts you off in traffic or a pandemic strikes, you know that you can come back to you again and again and again. And that is how meditation and resiliency intertwine. And that's why the kind of meditation that we use and teach on Mind Oasis, shamatha meditation, calm abiding, using the breath as anchor is so impactful. And I say this with a little bit of fire, because you too can find resiliency and you don't have to have your parents get a divorce. You don't have to have your husband leave you for another woman who is your friend. You don't have to have your mom die in a motorcycle accident. You can actually get to resiliency through practice. I, I would put my life on that statement. That's how strongly I believe that meditation practice can help you build your resiliency. It might be baby steps. It might be baby breaths. It might take you the rest of your effing life. But a meditation practice can and will build your resiliency for when life changes and is uncertain. And life changes and is uncertain all the time, especially right now. We are in a pressure cooker. So that's one thing. And then finally, I would just say that community meditation, which is group meditation, right? We meditate in a group, has the added benefit of feeling like you are in community. So if you are feeling lonely, stop, join us. See, take, say, I'm gonna do it for seven days. We've got our meditation challenge going on right now. Commit to seven days and just see if there isn't one person on the screen in front of you that you just feel some connection with. You might not even speak. You might not be on screen, that's perfectly okay. But you might just see someone who smiles and that smile might bring a little smile to your heart. I challenge you to try that. 
And then finally, I promised you one practice. You can Google Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H. She has a practice called RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it's a wonderful, gentle way of working with strong emotions. And, um, and so that's a really good resource as well. Thank you for joining me. I will put links at the end of this meditation happy hour. I hope you enjoyed your cup of coffee. I hope you enjoyed the story of Mind Oasis. And one of these days I'll share a little bit more about how um, my personal life moved from a decade of uh, sideways behavior into um, the next decade of uh, joy and happiness. Life still totally throws shit bombs at me all the time. And my husband would tell you I still get angry all the time. But there is an underlying Teflon resiliency there. And, and, and the heart of that is, is a well, an unending well of joy and happiness that I can always tap into no matter what's going on. Okay, so much love, y'all. Thank you for joining me.